From the Third Coast International Audio Festival and PRX, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is Best of the Best, the 2016 Third Coast Festival broadcast. Today, we bring you the best audio documentaries of the year, winners of our 16th annual Richard H. Treehouse Foundation competition. But before we share these amazing stories, just a little bit about who we are and what we do. Third Coast is an independent arts organization in Chicago dedicated to celebrating great radio stories. All year long, we scour the globe for the best work we can find and share them in a variety of ways, via radio and podcast, on the internet, and at live listening events. We also host an international competition to honor all the wonderful work our medium has to offer and the talented producers who create it. Each year, we ask the best and the brightest in public radio and beyond to take time out of their busy schedules to be our judges. And let me tell you, that is no easy task. This year, over 550 entries, more than ever in our history, poured in from 17 different countries, including Australia, Israel, and the UK. Ten won top honors. These are the stories we're happy to bring you in the next hour, recently crowned at our awards celebration in Chicago, hosted by Anna Sale of WNYC's Death, Sex, and Money. What great audio storytelling always does, it gets us in the heads of people who are not like us and makes us see what we have been missing. Or at other times, and most importantly, it gets us into the heads of people who are like us and forces us to confront what we have been trying to deny. We need this right now. But we have always needed this. And Third Coast has been celebrating stories that do this for 16 years now. Let's begin with our Best New Artist Award. This prize goes to a reporter or documentarian who's been working in the field for two years or less. And while they may not have the experience of a more seasoned producer, they already have a unique voice that has made us sit up and take notice. This year, the award goes to Rachel Matlow. This winning story was recorded in the last weeks of Rachel's mother's life, as the two of them binge-watched TV and had long talks. Here's an excerpt of Dead Mom Talking. Hey, Mom. I'm here at your bench. Looks really good. It's just what you wanted. Well, you really have missed a lot in the past year. Your after party went really well. Lots of people came, and I even did stand-up comedy about you. You know you've always been a source of good material. And you'd be happy to know that Harper is out. Trudeau got in. Oh, and the second season of Transparent is really good. I wish we could have watched together. And the holidays and birthdays haven't been the same without you. Bringing up something inappropriate at the table, like furries. <laughs> <laughs> I miss that laugh. I really wish I could talk to you. Yeah. That's a common thing I keep reading that people are here. That if only I could just pick up the phone once and talk to her again. If you want, just talk to me. Just think you're talking to me. Okay. But it's not the same as you actually being alive and here right now. It's not the same, but... No, it's not the same. <laughs> no, it's not the same. 
I sometimes just think you're on a really long, silent meditation retreat. I don't know where you are, but I wish you were here. I know. I wish I were here, too. <laughs> I just don't know how to get through this without you. I mean, I, I knew I would be sad, but I never knew I'd be this sad. What would you tell me if you were here? I would tell you that everybody has a lot of sadness in their life. Everybody does, no matter what they look like on the outside. And sometimes you go for a w quite a long time with everything great. But everybody does suffer, and so it's not weird or wrong or not socially acceptable to be sad. I know it's not weird, but I'm not always sure I know what to do. Well, one thing is just to sit with it. That's the Buddhist way. You just feel the loss and the pain, and it'll move. It'll move a lot faster than if you try to, like, just take it away or suppress it or, you know. It's just better to say, I'm missing my mother right now. I'm missing my mother right now. If you're sad, be sad. Because it's life. You can't, you know what I mean? It's unfortunately, people die. We all die. So... And the people left behind are the ones who really suffer. Like, I mean, the person might be terrified of dying beforehand, but I don't have any worries about going to hell or heaven. <laughs> I'm glad you have a sense of humor about it. <laughs> but as the person left behind, what else can I do when I miss you? Uh, you could, I have a lot of diaries that are usually like, oh, I'm so unhappy, I don't do it. But I'm not going to throw them out. If you want to read them, <laughs> if you want to know about my sex life, you can. <laughs> Mom. Um, but it is a way you might want to, or some of them, or start them, or read pieces. I, I think it would be, you know what I mean? It would really bring me back, because they're all handwritten, and they're um, pretty raw. I wish they could really bring you back. But I'll still give them a read, at my own risk. I just can't get over the fact that you won't be here to see some really big things in my life. Like if I get married or have a kid. Oh, cripes. There's nothing you can do except I want to tell you this and I want you to remember it, that I couldn't be any prouder of you than I am today, but I wish I could see that. I do. Mm -hmm. I mean, I wish I could see everything that goes on in your life from now on. I just had a thought. Yeah? If you do have a daughter, could you give her Elaine even as a middle name? Sure. Okay. I would like that. Well, only if I have a daughter. <laughs> I know. But if you did. Or a dog. I mean, how many dogs are named Elaine? It would be very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that wouldn't be weird at all. But it already sucks for small things like you not having been around for my birthday. So I can't imagine what's going to feel like if you miss the birth of my kid or dog. Well, when you concentrate on gratitude and what you were given, you can't feel sorry for yourself. Like, you can't do both at the same time. It actually is an impossibility. So I would, like, actually consciously look for some gratitude at that moment. Like, I've been given a lot in my life, and... I've had real losses and grief, too, and one of them is that I wish my mom could be here, but everybody gets both. I mean, reframing is a good idea, too, sometimes. 
And I don't mean, it sounds cheap sometimes, but, but I think it's a really good thing to do. So reframing, you know, Mom, you've really been there for me, and it's been good to talk to you during these times, and I wish I could in the future. To reframe it in that I had a mother who did give me that, I've got some of that inside me now. It's part of me. And I did get some really good mothering, and I mean, it's a complicated relationship, but I think ours has been great. And that great is better than perfect, way better. I agree. It's been great. It hasn't been perfect because perfect is... Impossible. Yeah, it's impossible. But it's been real and honest. Yes. Yes. And a lot more than that. Yeah, we have a good time together. It's like... Yeah, we had so much fun. Yeah, and we support each other and, you know... You really think you're in me? Yeah, I do. But also, we are, like, we're a mother and daughter, uh, son, and <laughs> we're, we're very entwined. So, like, you'll never forget me. I mean, the grief will fade. Um, and it's funny with me, and I don't know if it'll happen with you, but every once in a while, I'm just hit by it. And, you know, every once in a while, I'll just think of my father and just really want to talk to him. And, 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 and with my mother, it's quite often on the radio. I don't know why, but they play I'll Be Seeing You, and that was our song. And, and it makes me cry. <laughs> so... That this heart and mind embraces all day through In that small cafe The park across the way The children's carousel The chestnut trees wishing well That song also reminds me of Grandma. Now it makes me think of you and all the places we used to go to together, like the art gallery. Oh, I know. Drinks on the roof of the Park Plaza. I know. Walking in this ravine. Well, we've been very lucky. We really were. We really have been extremely lucky. I just wish somebody would have told me that the luck was gonna run out so soon. I wish you didn't have to leave me. That was an excerpt from Dead Mom Talking, produced by Rachel Matlow, for the Sunday edition on CBC Radio 1. The story is Rachel's very first radio documentary. Our judges said that the idea behind Dead Mom Talking is beautiful and brave. It's funny, feisty, and loving. We at Third Coast can't wait to hear what's next from Rachel. This year's Third Coast Honorable Mention Award winner comes to us from a radio training program in the refugee camp in Calais, France. It follows a man as he and his family escape war-torn Afghanistan for a better life in Europe. Here's an excerpt of Journey. Imagine you were in my shoes. How would you feel? You are 
29 years old with a wife, two children and a job and you live in a small house in the city. Suddenly you hear an explosion. Your house no longer has a living room. You run outside and see that the whole street is destroyed. Nothing is left standing. You take your family back into the house and then you run to your parents' house. It is no longer there, nor are your parents. You look around and find an arm with your mother's ring on his finger. You can't find any other sign of your parents. But asylum seekers have so many luxury goods, smartphones, and designer clothes. You immediately forget it. You rush home and ask your wife to get the children dressed. You grab a small bag because anything bigger will be impossible to carry for a long time. In it, you pick essentials, only two pieces of clothing each can fit in the bag. What do you take? You will probably never see your home country again, not your family, not your neighbors, your workmates. But how can you stay in contact? You hastily throw your smartphone and the charger in the bag, along with the few clothes, some bread, and your small daughter's favorite teddy. They can easily afford to get away. They are in pool. Because you could see the emergency coming, you have already scrapped all your money together. You managed to save some money because of your well-paid job. The kind people smuggler in the neighborhood charge 5,000 euros per person. You have 15,000 euros. With a bit of luck, you will all be able to go. If not, you will have to let your wife go. You love her and pray that the smuggler will take you all. By now, you are totally wet out and have nothing else, just your family and the back. The journey to the border takes two weeks on foot. You are hungry and for the last week have barely eaten. You are weak, as is your wife, but at least the children have enough. They have cried for the whole two weeks. All the time you have to carry your younger daughter. She is only 21 months old. A further two weeks and you have arrived at the sea. In the middle of the night you are loaded onto a ship with other refugees. You are lucky your whole family can travel. The ship is so full that it threatens to capsize. You pray that you don't drown. The people around you are crying and screaming. A few small children have died of thirst. The smugglers throw them overboard. Your wife sits vacantly in a corner. She hasn't had anything to drink for two days. When the coast is in the sight, you are loaded onto small boats.
your wife and the younger child are on one you and your older child are on another you are warned to stay silent so that nobody knows you are there your older daughter understands but your younger one is the other board doesn't she doesn't stop crying the other refugees are getting nervous that demand that your wife keeps the child quiet she doesn't manage it one of the men grabs your daughter wraps her away from your wife and throw her overboard you jump in after her but you can't find her again never again in 3 months she will have turned 2 years old isn't that enough for you they still have it too good here and have everything handed to them on a plate you don't know how you your wife and your older daughter managed to get to the country that takes you in it's as though everything is all foggy your wife hasn't spoken a word since your daughter died your older daughter hasn't let go of her sister's tidy and is totally apathetic but you have to keep going you are just about to arrive at the emergency accommodation it is 10 pm a man whose language you don't understand takes you to a hall with cum beds there are 500 beds all very close together in the hall it is stuffy and loud you try to get your bearings to understand what the people there want from you but in reality you can't barely stand up you nearly wish that they had shot you you unpack your meager possessions two items of clothing each and your smartphone then you spend your first night in a safe country the next morning you are given some clothes among the donated clothes or even branded label clothes and a toy for your daughter you are given 140 euros for the whole month they are safe here therefore they should be happy outside in the yard dressed in your new clothes you hold your smartphone high in the air and hope to have some reception you need to know if anyone from your city is still alive then a concerned citizen comes by and abuses you you don't know why you don't understand go back to your own country you understand something like smartphone and handed everything on a plate somebody translates for you and now tell me how you feel and what you own dancer to both parts of that is nothing now i ask you all is it the end of my suffer or i must struggle more to find peace thank you for your listening i hope it will never happen to someone else never
That was an excerpt from Journey, a story from the refugee camp in Calais, France, produced by an audio trainee named Hamid. The judges said that the story refuses to let us look away. Journey does what radio does best, reaching out through the darkness to find receptive ears, creating empathy in the process. The Jungle Refugee Camp was recently dismantled, but the audio training program, Jungala Radio, is continuing to provide training and workshops and community radio for refugees in Calais and beyond. To learn more about Jungala Radio, visit thirdcoastfestival.org and search for Jungala, J-U-N-G-A-L-A. Radio is a powerful medium. When harnessed, it can move people to action and inspire change. And this is what Third Coast honors with our Radio Impact Award. This year, it goes to a story that carefully traces the origin of lead-contaminated water in Flint, Michigan. The documentary came out before the governor declared a state of emergency, before the president declared a state of emergency, and just as people were beginning to get an inkling that their water in Flint was not safe to drink. Here's Lindsay Smith. Families in Flint have been taking extreme measures to avoid drinking their tap water. They worry. It's just not safe. Hey, Gavin, what do we say about the water? They've been to enough rallies. <laughs> Four-year-old Gavin Walters has his rally cry down. Gavin and his twin brother Garrett grew up in Flint. The fight for clean, safe drinking water has become a family affair. The boys' mom and dad, Leanne and Dennis Walters, their older brother J.D. and sister Kaylee, they've been to plenty of protests in the last few months. You guys like to go hold your signs when we go out and fight for the water, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. Up until October, the Walters lived in a yellow, two-story home on the south side of Flint. Walters heads to the back of the house in a small room off of the kitchen where the family keeps its stockpile of bottled water. Okay, so this is our water stash. Once a week we go and we fill 40 gallons of water so that we have water to drink with, to cook with, and to bathe um, Gavin and Garrett in. Walters won't let her kids drink any water from her faucet. She won't even let her four-year-old boys bathe in anything but bottled water. Luckily, her husband can shower at work. Her two oldest kids, teenagers, they usually shower over at Grandma's house outside of town. We're going to spend quite a bit of time at the Walters' place, and there's good reason for that. See, there's a lot of people in Flint who knew something was wrong with the water. But this family's story, especially Leanne's role as a worried mother, changed everything about how the water crisis in Flint was handled. People in Flint started complaining about their tap water early in the summer of 2014, not long after the city stopped pumping its drinking water from Detroit. Instead, Flint started pumping it from the Flint River. But back then, Leanne Walters didn't think it was that big of a deal. They'd just bought the house. Someone had stripped all the plumbing. So we had to redo all the plumbing, and we installed that the whole house filter. So I'm like, yeah, it sucks. And I'm like, but, you know, we've got this filter, so we should be good. Every drop of water that comes into her home goes through this filter. But a few weeks after the switch, Walters noticed something was weird. She had just set up the swimming pool in the side yard for the summer. 
Gavin started breaking out every time he'd get in the pool. The rash was bad enough that Walters took him to the doctor. And the doctors kept telling us it was contact dermatitis. He's coming into contact with something he's allergic to. Later, Walters says her doctor suggested it was eczema. They gave her a cortisone cream to rub on Gavin's rash. But by July, it wasn't just Gavin. His twin brother, Garrett, got the rash, too. And we took him in, and they told us it was scabies, so we treated them with that pesticide. Walters was relieved when the boy's rash went away. But that feeling didn't last long. Walters remembers the day the rash came back because she had a bunch of people over to celebrate her daughter's high school graduation. And all the people that were here swimming and drinking the water, all of them broke out. She scheduled another doctor's appointment for her four-year-olds. Same diagnosis. But Walters really had some doubts about the scabies diagnosis, especially after the party. The third time they tried to convince us that it was scabies, I said, "Uh uh-uh, no. The cream wasn't working on Gavin, period. He had that rash for more than a month straight. Walters wasn't standing for it anymore, so she took Gavin to a dermatologist down in Brighton. They scraped in between Gavin's little toes, put it under the microscope. And she verified by doing the skin scrapes there was no scabies, there was no live anything, no dead anything, no eggs. So no scabies, but she still didn't know what caused the rash. But then Walters noticed something. Gavin's rash flared up every time he swam in the pool and every time he took a bath. Something clicked. It became clear to her right then that Gavin's rash was caused by something in the tap water. We quit drinking the water in December when my 14-year-old got sick, and it started coming through our filter out the kitchen sink, Brown. That was December 2014. Walter says the water had this orangish-brown tinge that would not go away even when she put a fresh cartridge in the water filter. And at this point, she was putting a fresh cartridge in the water filter at least a couple times a month. Back when Flint was buying Detroit water, she only replaced it a couple times a year. So she called the city out to come take a look. They sent Mike Glasgow. He's Flint's utilities administrator. Yeah, I remember this fairly well. So a complaint had come through from her about discolored water, orange water. Glasgow says complaints like Walter's were common around this time. But there's a reason this one stood out. After the first day there, you know, I said, well, there's a few ways we go about trying to clean this up. Um, I'll be back a week later as a follow-up. And usually, you know, we can clear something up in that amount of time. A week later, Glasgow went back to Walter's house. Her tap water looked exactly the same. Still had this orange tinge. And I just happened to, you know, have some lead and copper sample bottles with me. And since her water was still... Discolored, I started to worry more about corrosion. Glasgow called Walters right away, but he couldn't reach her that afternoon. He left her a voicemail. You have reached the voicemail box of six. Walters vividly remembers that message late that night. Hi, Leanne. It's Mike from the water department. I just wanted to call it. You know, we got your test back. Please, whatever you do, don't let your kids drink the water. Don't make their juice with it. And please, just give me a phone call back as soon as possible. Walters tossed and turned all night, worrying. How bad could the water be? By the time Walters did get a hold of Mike Glasgow the next day, she was kind of panicked. He was like, your number's at 104, and I'm like, okay, well, what is it supposed to be? He's like, not over 15, and I'm like, wait, what? That was an excerpt of Not Safe to Drink, reported and produced by Lindsay Smith and edited by Sarah Hewlett, with reporting help from Steve Carmody, Rebecca Williams, and Mark Brush for Michigan Radio. 
Our judges said, by doing what it does best, covering its own community, Michigan Radio commanded the nation's attention through the voices of its people. This story not only helped restore quality of life for thousands of individuals, but also illuminated the political inadequacies that threatened it in the first place. To hear the entire hour-long documentary, visit thirdcoastfestival.org. Every year, the staff of Third Coast reserves an award for an audio documentary we find especially impressive. Maybe it's beautifully produced, wholly original in its storytelling, or something that we haven't heard before. This year, the Director's Choice Award goes to a story that uncovered a devastating epidemic taking place in office buildings around the country. Violación de un sueño, or Rape on the Night Shift, was a bilingual collaboration between five news organizations. The story uncovers a problem amongst the vulnerable immigrant women who work the night hours as janitors, cleaning office buildings in isolation amongst a maze of cubicles and empty conference rooms. In this short excerpt, we first meet Maria Magana, who's been cleaning office buildings in California for almost two decades. She entrusted the reporters with her story. Here's a small sample. Magaña es una mujer pequeñita, entre los 50. La aspiradora que lleva atada en la espalda la enchiquece aún más. Lo único que no me gusta es aspirar. Yo prefiero mapearlo todo. Porque esa está muy pesada la aspiradora. Ha estado limpiando oficinas en California por casi dos décadas. Una noche la acompañamos durante su turno. Magaña hasta usa un tenedor de plástico para raspar el polvo en las orillas de las ventanas. This year's Director's Choice Award goes to Violación de un Sueño, Jornada Nocturna, or Rape on the Night Shift, produced by Sasha Coca. Daffodil Alton, Bernice Jung, and Andre Cedilla. It was edited by Deb George. Please welcome Sasha Coca and Deb George to the stage. Here's producer Sasha Coca at the Third Coast Festival Award Ceremony hosted by Anna Sale, held this past November in Chicago. You know, every time I hear that piece of tape from Maria Magaña, and I've heard it many, many times, I remember that this project is really for her, Maria Magaña, for Erika Morales, for Georgina Hernandez, for Zoila Altan, for all the women janitors who talked to us, those who agreed to go on tape and those who didn't. We spent 18 months building relationships with these women and reporting this story. Some of them had never told their own families what had happened to them at work their children, their spouses. And the decision they made to trust us with those stories was something that I hold as very sacred and so do the other people on our team. We were a very crazily complicated team, but all really committed to one thing, which was that we were gonna honor the request of the women to not only tell these stories to people who occupy the buildings that they clean at night during the day, the office buildings, the schools, the hotels, the airports, that we all pass through, 
um, where their work is supposed to be invisible, the toilets they scrub, the vacuuming they do, but also that we were gonna honor their request to get the word out to other women janitors like them so that they knew that they don't have to suffer sexual abuse at the hands of their supervisors. And that's why we made the commitment to do this story bilingually. And it was so moving for me to see that this work inspired a change in California law, but also inspired hundreds of women janitors to march and rally and hold a hunger strike in front of the Capitol to pressure the governor of California to sign this bill. So I'm tremendously proud um, of our whole team, and I'm very, very honored to take home this award on behalf of the team and on behalf of the women. That was Sasha Coca, co-producer of Violación de un Sueño, or Rape on the Night Shift, for Reveal and Español. Now we've come to the 2016 Third Coast Best Documentary Silver Award winner. This deeply, deeply personal story took three years of field work and 20 years of thought and reflection about a random act of violence that shook a family to its core and changed Pennsylvania's sentencing laws. It began in 1994 when Samantha Brown's mother, Jeremy Brown, was attacked in her backyard in Nyack, New York. Against the odds, Jeremy survived. Two decades later, Samantha, now a public radio producer, shares the personal and political implications of her mother's traumatic experience. Here's an excerpt of their story. Reginald McFadden was found guilty of raping, robbing, and beating a 55-year-old woman. McFadden it did not take the jury long to return a verdict yesterday, 15 minutes. Today's verdict means an end to a long and painful ordeal for the victim in this case. Tim Most rape victims prefer to remain anonymous, not this 55-year-old social worker. My name is Jeremy, Jeremy Brown. How wonderful it feels to tell you who I am. Once the trial was over, my mother went public. She gave speeches, made appearances on TV. She was named a Woman of the Year by CBS. Has uh, Jeremy Brown earned a place uh, of honor in the history of, uh, of rape convictions? She certainly has, and she is certainly, I know, um, an inspiration to many of the women who have not had um, the ability to, to go forward. Beyond the amazing fact that she had survived the attack, there was another reason my mother wanted to speak out. It's that she had survived the trial, too. In one of the most surreal twists of this whole ordeal, Reginald McFadden defended himself in court, which meant he cross-examined my mother. Trial transcripts show exchanges like this. McFadden asked, But at some time in that night, your attacker got out the car and walked around and closed the door and hollered at you? My mother replied, I think he did. He, you beat on me from the front seat, and I was very scared. I thought you were going to kill me right then. Basically, I'm mad as hell, and I got to talk about it. Think about being tortured by a stranger for five hours. Think about listening to his voice tell you all those disgusting things to do for five hours, and then have to sit in a courtroom, listen to people call him Mr. McFadden, and think what it would do to you to have him say your name. My mother shared her story because she felt better when she did, or at least less alone. 
and because she hoped that by speaking out, it might change things for herself, for others. The day after McFadden's sentencing, I returned to graduate school. Eventually, my mother started working again as an addiction counselor. She even moved back into her house. It wasn't easy, but it was important, she said, that he not take the house away from her. A few years ago, nearly 20 years after the attack, my mother and her longtime boyfriend settled into a new home, one near me on Cape Cod. Her post-traumatic stress came with her too. The ghost of McFadden watched from the woods near her house. He waited for her in the living room. He crept up the stairs at night. Seeing my mother struggle as she tried to settle into her new home brought the trauma to the surface for me too. That's when I decided, with my mother's blessing, that I needed to do something, to talk to others. And ultimately, I wondered if my mom and I would feel better. I drew up a list of names, cops, politicians, journalists, academics, other victims, and my brother. Near the top of my list of people to talk to were the men who had voted on McFadden's commutation from prison in Pennsylvania. Some background first. In Pennsylvania, the only way out for lifers, besides escape or death, is to have their sentence commuted. Historically, commutation has been common practice in Pennsylvania. It serves as a release valve, a way to control the size of prison populations, reward good behavior, and give prisoners sentenced to life hope for a second chance. After serving 25 to 30 years of a life sentence, if lifers show remorse and behave themselves in prison, they have a shot at commutation. The crime McFadden was seeking commutation for happened in 1969. He was convicted, along with two other young men, of the burglary and murder of Sonia Rosenbaum, a 60-year-old woman in Philadelphia. McFadden was 16 years old at the time. His record was already filled with over a dozen arrests, and for this crime, he was sentenced to life without parole. By 1992, McFadden had been in prison for just over 20 years. He had applied for commutation seven times with no luck. The eighth time was different. He succeeded. I was, I was very skeptical to my uh, fellow pardons board members. Republican Ernest Preate was the attorney general for Pennsylvania in the late 80s, early 90s. He was the only person to vote no on McFadden's commutation. I said, I don't, I don't like this guy. I don't think he's ready to go. I'm very, very hesitant to recommend, recommend him uh, to the governor. Preate was hesitant for another reason. It turns out McFadden had ratted on fellow prisoners twice, once during an attack on a guard in a Pittsburgh prison and then during the violent riots that erupted at the Camp Hill prison in the 1980s. The department was recommending him. The Department of Corrections was recommending him. So that this was part of the payback to, the, to McFadden was, we'll recommend you for uh, a commutation um, because you've been helpful to us in dealing with the riot at Camp Hill. I spoke to several people off the record, academics, prison activists, former Department of Corrections employees. They all mentioned McFadden's role in the Camp Hill riots as a factor in his release. They said things like, his commutation seemed like a done deal, or that it was rushed through. Some even wondered if McFadden's records had been scrubbed. Despite multiple requests, no one from the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections or their press office would go on record with me to confirm or deny this. I have a feeling this is going to be grueling, huh? I get the sense that you're scared I'm going to... I'm scared of something. I don't know what it is. <laughs> well, the, I'm nervous about this. It's, I, I mean, I have thought a lot about you over the last 20 years. 
five people sit on the Pennsylvania Board of Pardons. When McFadden applied for commutation in 1992, Democrat Mark Single was the lieutenant governor and the head of the board. Although his vote counted the same as everyone else's, it was Mark Single more than anyone who was blamed for what happened once McFadden got out. He was the former board member I most wanted to talk to. When I thought of other people who must be haunted by this event, I thought, Mark Single. The Board of Pardons was always skeptical. I mean, the numbers of people that we even considered was uh, minuscule, microscopic. The board never met Reginald McFadden. Amazingly, that's not part of the commutation process in Pennsylvania. But others spoke on his behalf, and McFadden had to submit piles of paperwork, including descriptions of past crimes, names of current sponsors, and accomplishments in prison. What I recall about the McFadden presentation was that everybody was on board. The psychologist and the uh, warden and the corrections people uh, were all saying that this is somebody who had done extraordinarily well. The board voted four to one in favor of McFadden's commutation. Single voted yes. He believed he was doing the right thing. I have to tell you that my own personal background, I grew up in a very um, Catholic and a, and a specific type of Catholicism, Byzantine Catholic. When we were uh, very young, the whole family would go in and sing the Mass every day in Old Slavonic, which is a version of Russian, and the phrase that uh, we would sing over a hundred times during the uh, liturgy was Hospodi Pomiloi, Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy. And my, um, my family believed in that. That makes you emotional. Yeah, yeah. So you felt like you were, here you were in a position to have mercy on people. To do my job as a human being, not just as the uh, lieutenant governor. When McFadden walked out of prison, he was 42 and had never spent a day of his adult life as a free man. Surprisingly, McFadden didn't go to a halfway house, a bureaucratic oversight. McFadden's transition didn't go well. Within a month, he went through two or three jobs and started stealing from his roommate. Within two months, he started to spiral out of control, killing Robert Silk, Margaret Keurer, and Dana DeMarco, and of course, attacking my mom. During the first week of October, just 92 days after he was released from prison, Reginald McFadden was arrested as the prime suspect of these crimes. News of McFadden's arrest arrived in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, where Democrat Mark Single was ahead in the governor's race against Republican Tom Ridge. In October of 1994, Tom Ridge wasn't well known, not even in Pennsylvania. He was a congressman representing a small rural district. Mark Single, on the other hand, had been the lieutenant governor for nearly eight years. The feeling across the state was that Mark Single was a shoe-in. So they were ready to just simply transfer the, the mantle, and I could feel it all across Pennsylvania. And Tom Ridge never got close, never got close. And then McFadden happened. And all they had to do was to put an ad up and put McFadden's picture out there and say, see, we told you, this is what happens when you're weak on crime. Mark Single votes to free a convicted murderer. The man Mark Single voted to free is arrested for rape and murder. Mark Single, bad judgment. Too liberal on crime. 
How can we ever trust him again? There's a better choice. Tom Ridge, the judgment and character we trust. And then everything shifted. The whole tectonic plates of my universe changed. And uh, we watched that campaign disintegrate. It went from an eight-point lead to a uh, us being seven points behind in 48 hours. 15-point swing. I've never, ever seen that in politics. Mark Singel's career as a politician was over, and Tom Ridges was about to soar. My understanding is that, uh, from what I've read and from what I remember, that Reginald McFadden was a real turning point in the election. Do, did, did you, do you see it that way? Well, I can't, I mean, I can't doubt that it had an impact. Uh, but from my perspective, what it did for me was put an exclamation point on what I've been talking about for over a year. It took months and a lot of persistence to land an interview with Tom Ridge. I met him in a huge suite of offices in downtown Washington, D.C., where he now runs a political consulting firm. In 2001, George W. Bush asked Ridge to leave his post as governor of Pennsylvania and to join him at the White House to head up what would become the new Department of Homeland Security. But back in 1995, having beaten Mark Singel in the election, Tom Ridge was being sworn in as the governor of Pennsylvania. The main thing that won him the election was his stance on crime. And so once elected, what did you feel your mandate was then on this issue? Well, I told folks, if you elect me, one of the first things I'm going to do, I'm going to call a special session on crime, and that's exactly what we did. The same special session on crime that I testified in, the same special session that focused on getting tough and essentially putting an end to any chance of commutation for lifers. Here's the thing. This was the mid-'90s. Crime was one of the top issues on most voters' minds in Pennsylvania and across the country. People wanted to feel safe. For Tom Ridge, who was already running as a tough-on-crime candidate, Reginald McFadden's spree was, strange to say, perfectly timed. Although sprees like McFadden's are extremely rare, it had the exact class and racial components to draw in the media and incite public hysteria. You know, I, a lot of people who I've spoken to talk about the constitutional changes that went into effect as a result of the special session and that that makes it nearly impossible for people to have their sentence commuted. And I, as a person who testified at that special session and <clears throat> perhaps contributed to those changes being made, I think about that a lot because I think, I think about the lives that are being impacted. Do, do you ever think about those changes and wonder if perhaps they're too strict or wonder about the impact of, of those changes and the reduced number of people getting commuted? Uh, candidly, uh, it's a fair question, and I haven't given it much thought. Most of my opinions I hold today, I held 20 or 30 years ago, but not all of them. So I'm I've asked everybody this question, um, and I think all the people that I'm meeting with are I'm choosing because I believe this incident changed their life personally. Yeah. And I'm wondering how you think this incident, McFadden, changed your life personally. Well, I hope you're not disappointed, but I'm not sure it did. It changed uh, your mother's life. It changed the lives of many families. 
It certainly, in a positive way, I'd like to think, changed the lives of hundreds, if not thousands, of other families and victims. But for me personally, um, the only thing it did was reaffirm in my own mind that the approach I took towards reforming some of the criminal justice system was the right thing to do. I think my personal connection to all this made some of the people I interviewed nervous and careful. That's understandable. And it made me all the more grateful to Mark Single, the guy who lost the election, for the way he talked to me. Like when I asked him difficult questions like this one. If you had the chance to um, say something to my mom or to the family members of of the other... just that I'm terribly sorry that uh, I feel to the people who were the immediate victims, I hurt that. And I didn't mean to. So there you have it. Hearing Mark Single say this eased something in me. My mother felt the same way when I played it for her. It's wonderful that he expressed such personal feelings with you, because that's the human being. Um, the, the last time we talked and we went through what happened on September 21st, how was that for you? I think it went pretty well. I do. Um... Is it difficult for me to share it or to, to revisit it? No, I, it's a reality for me. I guess the difficulty is carrying it around. And what, what, are your, what are the scars that you have from this? And I, I don't know if you actually have physical scars, but what, any kind of scars, what, what are the scars that you have? I can't sing. That's it. It's huge. What does it mean for you not to be able to sing? Well, I was a bird who could sing. <laughs> I can sing, right? But I cry, so I, it stops me. And that's very painful. Because that was who I was. I was a girl who was born with a voice, and I could sing. And I can't now. It's true. My mother was not only a singer on Broadway, but she used to be one of those people who would break into song in public places. I haven't heard her do that in years. That was an excerpt from A Life Sentence, Victims, Offenders, Justice, and My Mother, produced by Samantha Brown and Jay Allison for Transom.org, a website that channels new work, voices, and ideas into public media. We spoke to Sam about the story. Now that you've sat back, how did it end up affecting you, either during or after? 
I think in part it took so long to make it, in fact, because it was really hard to hold onto and have as the centerpiece of what I was working on. It just felt sort of radioactive. And, you know, I had bad dreams. I sometimes would imagine the guy that attacked my mother was walking down the street in, in the small town that I live in. Um, and then there are other times where it definitely felt like therapy and like I was working through something. The thing that's most notable to me, having finished it, is I feel like I feel it more in that way that you do when you work through something in therapy. I think it's like I've integrated it into my body as opposed to thinking about it in my head. And and so I just feel things more in a way that feels positive to me. Having a microphone in your hand can change what you ask, what people answer, it really gives you permission somehow to ask and to get to things that you might not otherwise be able to do. Absolutely. I would not have approached any of these people without my microphone, which is a, is a weird thing to say. In fact, it's why I didn't end up going to see McFadden himself, because he's in solitary confinement he can't be interviewed or you can't go in to see him with any, with anything, not even, I think not even pencil and paper. And the, the thought of sitting across from him without my microphone was terrifying. <laughs> and, uh, and part of the reason I, I didn't want to go. That was Samantha Brown who produced a life sentence with Jay Allison for transom.org. I used to think that the ubiquity of earbuds and headphones seemed isolating and kind of lonely. But now, after the Big Bang-like expansion of listening choices, I think of them as portals. And I wonder what Narnia-like worlds my fellow listeners are in. What new niche of experience are they swimming in at this very moment? And now, when I walk down the street, I'm no longer all judgy. I realize I'm just jealous. That brings us to the end of this hour of Best of the Best, the 2016 Third Coast Festival broadcast. The program was produced by Dennis Funk with assistance from Isabel Vasquez and distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange. The executive director of the Third Coast Festival is Johanna Zorn. The artistic director is Sarah Geis. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, the National Endowment for the Arts, and Bloomberg Philanthropies. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is supported in part by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council Agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from around the world. The Third Coast Festival, now an independent arts organization, was originally founded at WBEZ Chicago.